All right. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It is, uh, I guess, time. We've got the uh, the wonderful organ going in the background, so that's that's probably a good signal. And then also, of course, the time being uh, nine o'clock now. So welcome to uh, Cornerstone Sunday School. It's wonderful to see some of the college students back. Thank you for uh, for being here, bright and early. And uh, we'll get started with this. We're going to be picking up where we left off in Second Peter. So um, go, ahead and get, go ahead and turn there, if you would, 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 16 through 23 this morning. And we're going to pick up where Alvin left off last week. So let's go ahead and um, read that, and then we'll pray and get started. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no script, uh, prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage that we get to look into today, but we thank you for the entirety of your word, that you have guarded it, that you have kept it inerrant and infallible, that you have given it authority, and that you have made it sufficient for all that we need. We thank you, Lord, for Peter and for what he wrote here, and we ask, Lord, that you would fill us with hope by it, hope that would transform us so that we do your will and so that we glorify you here on this earth. And we thank you so much that we have time to spend together in this passage. And we ask your, your blessings upon us as we examine it this morning. Bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts. And bless our time and discussion as we go through it later. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So you'll, you'll um, notice, in fact, for those of you who are new, what we normally do is we'll do kind of this uh, monologue type of thing. And then afterward, what we do is we get into discussion groups. I've got the discussion sheets up here on the front and then also on the back counter back there. And so if you want to check that out. And by the way, there was a typo. Um, it, there's one where it says Acts 846. If you look that up, there's no Acts 846. If you go to Acts 1346, that's what I meant. So the Bible's inerrant, not Doug. That's what uh, Nathan pointed out earlier. I thought that was funny. <laughs> the Bible's inerrant, not Doug. And that's actually kind of what we want to get into this morning, is um, the hope that we have in the Scripture and in its accuracy. And, uh, you know, last week, Alvin actually took us through verses 12 through 15 of our chapter and rightly pointed out the key point within those that Peter is issuing a reminder to his readers of the truth of the message of Christ, a reminder to remember, in fact. 
he's giving a reminder to remember this truth. When Peter is writing this message to his recipients to protect them from heretical ideas that were already infiltrating the church. You think about this, it's only a, a couple few decades after Christ. The gospel has gone out, churches have been established, and already heretical ideas are seeping in. And that's what Peter ends up getting into here. And unlike the Judaizing doctrines which Paul actually writes against in Galatians, or the pre-Gnostic ideas that John kind of talks about in 1 first, in first John, or speaks against in 1 John, we don't actually have an idea specifically of what those heretical ideas are that Peter is actually attacking here, Peter is, um, is trying to prevent. Instead of dr- addressing something specific, Peter then writes this, this epistle in more of a general way. It's, he's generally commending them to remember the words of truth. He's generally reminding them to remember the words of truth. He says this in that previous section that we looked at last week, verses uh, 12 through 15. And then he also says it in chapter 3, verses uh, 1 and 2, um, where he's reminding them. In fact, uh, let's see here. Yeah, in fact, if you look over there in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of remembrance, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by our apostles. So he, he also says to remember the words of truth in our passage today, which is interesting. What he's saying here is, first of all, in in chapter 3, he then goes on and he ends up talking about the righteousness, the love, the wisdom, the patience, the grace, and the knowledge to the glory of God, which you should remember. And then what he does in our passage today is he tells us to remember the words of truth again. Remembrance is the key word here. Remember the truth. Remember the power of Christ's coming. Remember the power of the message of the cross. Remember the power of that message to transform your life. Remember the power of it to give you hope. Remember the power of it against all of the lies and heresies which arise. That's what he's telling them. And so we turn to our passage today. And I want to actually really dig into this message. And that's what the the majority of our time is going to be. Because it's deeply significant to us. But, and, and I also want to remind you <laughs> that this is a reminder to remember. How's that for a chain, right? I want to remind you to remind yourselves of that. That you need to remember that there is a guarantee here too. And I really want to, uh, in the Air Force when you brief, you always tell people what you're going to tell them. Then you tell them. And then you tell people what you told them. And that's kind of what I want to do here. This is a, there's a guarantee in this passage, a guarantee. It's not explicit, it's implicit, but it's a guarantee nonetheless. This guarantee is that God is powerful enough. He's majestic enough. He's honorable enough. He's glorious enough. In fact, I would also say perfect enough to keep his scriptures pure and undefiled against all that the world has to throw at it, all that hell has to throw at it. That's the guarantee here. And in fact, those are the words that Peter uses, even though he's not talking necessarily about a guarantee. What he does say is he uses the terms, um, he uses the terms uh, powerful, majestic, honorable, and glorious in this passage. 
And we need to realize that that is what actually has maintained the scriptures through the centuries. And that's what gives us hope in what we read here and in what it actually conveys to us about Christ, about the message of the cross, about the redemption that God planned from before the beginning of time, all, and which he will carry out until the very end when he returns. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That's a guarantee. That's a guarantee. And that's what I want you guys to get from this passage. And then what I secondarily want you to get is an application. How do we apply that? We have to apply that guarantee because that guarantee isn't worth anything unless we do what it says to do, what what God says to do, what God has given us to do. And so the application is to have confidence in the word of God. Apply it to everything that you do. You must apply it to everything that you do, everything that you see, everything you experience. And then know that it has the authority and the priority over church creeds and confessions, as wonderful and useful as they are. Know that it has authority and power over princes and kingdoms, over presidents and nations. Know that it declares to all men everywhere that Christ is king and he has told us what he desires of us. To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly before God. And when we do walk humbly before God, what does he promise us then to? That he will guide us in the truth. And he will loose to us the prophetic word that Peter is talking about here. That prophetic word gets loose to us in our minds and our hearts. And it permeates and that changes us. And then what do we do? We go out and transform the world. That's a wonderful thing. And that's a promise. So we've got the guarantee. We've got the application. This is, this is a wonderful passage. So let's get right into it. Look at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And he's going to get into this whole eyewitnesses thing in a minute. But notice what he's saying right here in the first little bit of the passage. He's he's almost defending himself against an accusation, which presumably was brought about by the false teachers that he's actually addressing in this epistle. Because he says, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales, right? That word tales is the Greek word muthos from which we get, uh, or muthois, um, from which we get our English word myth. You know, it makes sense. And some of your translations may actually have that. Some of them translate it as myths or as stories or as fables. And it's clearly something derogatory, isn't it? Because when you think about myths and stories and fables, you're thinking about trying to um, get across a story that isn't true, maybe invented in order to deceive. That's actually what it's meant to do. And so there's obviously a defense here from Peter as if perhaps these false teachers embraced parts of what the apostles had thought but not everything, and claimed that this was uh, a cleverly devised myth. You know, maybe, maybe that's it. They thought this was more complex than normal myths. And so it was something that they, where they were kind of giving a little bit of credibility to it, but they still wanted to de- devalue it, degrade it, degrade the story of the cross. Maybe the false teachers had given credit where it was due and said something along the lines of, well, I'll give Peter and his friends this. Their story is pretty excellent. 
It's good to think about and is much more complex and believable than the average myth, but, and then they go off into their twisting of it, their change of it, because we've all seen that today, right? That's something that just happens with, with men. We end up wanting to twist the truth. We end up changing it. And I think that's probably something that Peter is talking about here. He's, he's defending he and the rest of the apostles and their message, the message that they had given from these heretics who were changing it, from these people who were adjusting it, just like we have to fight against it today because people want to believe in a Christ of their own interpretation, don't they? Rather than the story as it's told in Scripture, rather than the Christ that we get in the pages of this book, people want to invent for themselves a Jesus that meets their, uh, I'm not going to say needs because that's not what it is, meets their desires, right? They merely want him to be a good teacher rather than God himself. Or they go so far as to basically transform him completely and say, oh yeah, he was a non-judgmental utopian socialist who wanted peace and universality. Come on. We know better because we've read what's in here, don't we? We know better. And so when we're talking about cleverly devised tales, or when Peter's talking about it here, obviously... What he's doing is he's fighting against what the heretics were coming in and twisting the, the truth of the gospel to be. And he's saying, hey, listen, none of us, when we were the 12 apostles walking along behind Jesus, we didn't get together in a huddle and go, okay, here's the story we're going to foist on the world. Maybe we can get some fame and some fortune out of it. And we know he didn't do that. Why? Well, because... A whole bunch of those apostles paid with their lives. They lived in poverty, traveling around from place to place to get away from the persecution that they, that they were going through. And then boldly proclaiming it in the, new, the next place until they had their heads chopped off or they were crucified like Peter. It's clever, this story is clever and compelling because it's true and because it came from God rather than from men. Which is why Peter then says, also in verse 16, he says, we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The story of Christ has power because it's true. And it has power because it was the coming of our Lord. You notice that word coming there. It carried that weight when Peter and the rest of the apostles proclaimed it. Why? Because they had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now let's note something really quickly before we move into verse 17. Note that Peter binds together the words power and coming in regard to our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that in verse 16, power and coming. And there's something really important here. This is, um, we know that these two words are clearly about Christ and his incarnated life in the first century. That's what Peter's referring to. He's not necessarily referring to the power and coming, which is going to happen again on the day of our Lord, right? Um, But I want to get to that. 
because the power and the coming that he's actually binding together here, he's, he's putting in the context of the transfiguration, as we saw um, when we read it a moment ago. We're going to get into that. And obviously, he's, he's talking about having seen him physically. But I want you to notice those two words, power and coming, because they're important for our purposes here. Christ walked among these, these apostles. He walked among the people of Judea with power to heal and to cast out demons. And they saw it. Christ walked among them and took Peter and John and James up on the Mount of Transfiguration, was transfigured before them, and they saw it. We also know, though, that this coming and power is linked to the end when Christ comes back. Because Christ himself says in Matthew 24, 30, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And oh, by the way, that glory word ends up showing up in our verse here too, our text here too. So in other words, there are two comings of Christ, and we glory in both of them. The fact that Peter actually got to see Christ in the flesh is what he's appealing to against the heretics of his time. And he's saying, we saw the coming of the Christ, the Son of God, and it was powerful and majestic. And the second coming one day, which is commonly called the parousia, the presence, the coming, the advent, the in-person arrival of Christ is also important. And that is the word, actually, that Peter uses here in our text. In verse 16, he says, along with the power or the dunamis, along with the majesty versus glory, we also have the coming, the parousia. And I think there's a reason why he's using that word. And um, we're going to get to it here in a minute. And the reason I stress it is because Peter is about to write about his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration and make a point about the sureness of the story of Christ based on it before proceeding to make a point about the greater surety of the scriptures. Meanwhile, we, people living 2,000 years later, (laughs) untimely born, we didn't get to see the transfiguration, did we? Oh, we're like 2,000 years too late. And it seemed to be a pretty private affair considering he only brought Peter and James and John up there. So we don't get to see the transfiguration. Yet we have the scriptures themselves. The thing which Peter declares is more true or more sure in verse 19 of our text. And we will one day then see the power and the glory or majesty of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in that final parousia, when Christ descends in his power and glory cannot be denied, transfigured as the son of man. That's what we're talking about. So in other words, Peter's saying, okay, yes, we had the scriptures, but they ended up being fulfilled in this, in Christ himself, whom we saw transfigured. And all of a sudden we understood better the scriptures. But you, you, all of my readers who are having to deal with all these heresies, realize that it's the scriptures which actually proclaim Christ. And yet you won't be left out. Yes, I saw the transfigured Christ in the flesh there on the mountain. But one day you will see 
the transfigured Christ descending on a cloud. The shout and with a trumpet. Full of power and glory. What a wonderful thing. I don't know if that doesn't send chills down your spine, brothers and sisters. I don't I don't know what will, because that's awesome news. That's awesome. And I think that's what Peter is getting at. Yes, it was different for me. I saw the transfigured Christ, but you have the scriptures. Something more sure. Isn't that awesome? And one day I'm not going to be alone or, you know, with James and John in having seen this. You will too. How awesome. So let's move on. Verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter then tells his story. Two verses, he tells this entire story of the transfiguration. So he does leave some stuff out. And I want to look at, at one of the other accounts in a second here. It's told in all three of the synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And let's read the Matthew account real quick as we uh, kind of get a, a handle on all three. Turn over to Matthew chapter 17. Because I want to point out a few things about the story of the transfiguration, which is important for Peter's point here in Second uh, Peter. Matthew chapter 17, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes... They saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Now keep that in mind as we go forward with uh, 2 Peter. You can probably go back over to 2 Peter chapter 1. But I wanted to read that because there are several things that I, wanna, I want to lean on a little bit here for the, the parts that aren't mentioned here in 2 Peter 1 because some of it I think is relevant still to the point that Peter is making. The whole story is relevant. In all three accounts, we get the same open mouth, insert foot kind of comment from Peter, where he says, Lord, it is good for us to be here, which was true, right? But then if you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He's placing Christ on par with Moses and Elijah. Well, there's the problem, right? And then immediately he gets corrected because the voice of God himself interjects, interrupts him. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. Now, I think that there are several things which we can take from the story of the transfiguration for the purposes of Peter in our text today. But I only want to focus on a few for, for uh, now. First, note that Peter changes from power and majesty 
in verses 16 and 17, or excuse me, 16 in our text, to verse 17, honor and glory. So from power and majesty to honor and glory. And I started to think about that. Man, in a lot of ways, there's a lot of overlap between the meaning of those words. What was Peter doing? Is he just using some author's device to kind of get across, um, you know, using all the synonyms he knew in order to not sound repetitive or something? No. You know, power, honor, majesty, glory. No, that's not it. I think he was trying to grasp to express the inexpressible. He's trying to find some way to communicate the amazing nature of the fact that Christ, God himself, became flesh. And then he's also trying to express that it was glorious to behold him. But just like I mentioned, those words all have significance, right? Uh, Power and majesty, honor and glory. They're talked about in other passages to describe Christ, to describe his coming, to describe who he was, to describe also God the Father. And in fact, it's that second one that's important. So the second thing that we need to know is that it is majestic glory himself. Look at that in verse, uh, verse 17. Majestic glory, which said... This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It's majestic glory himself who imparts the majesty and the glory upon Christ. In other words, Peter is trying to express the inexpressible too by saying the God, uh, that God the Father and God the Son actually share this glory and this majesty, honor and power. And that majestic glory is so descriptive of who God is that it's even a viable name for him. What a wonderful actually address to God that we could come to him and say, dear majestic glory. (laughs) That's who he is. It describes him to such an extent that's his name. And so it's the majestic glory that imparts majestic glory upon God the Son, something they share. Third, and borrowing a tad heavily from the gospel accounts on this one, Moses and Elijah are important to Peter's overall point in our passage today. Though he doesn't talk about them in his epistle, we know that Moses personifies the law and Elijah personifies the prophets. And Christ is then the one glorified and singled out by the majestic glory, saying, listen to him in the, in the accounts in the, um, in the Gospels. Therefore, we get the point which Peter makes after this, that the scriptures are made more sure than even a transfiguration experience. Why? Because we're told by the Holy Spirit in our hearts to listen to him, to Christ. The personif- or the, not the personification, the, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets point us to Christ who is the embodiment of truth, truly the way, the truth, and the life, like we've talked about in John, the way, the truth, and the life, Christ himself. And then fourth, notice that Peter talks in the gospel accounts about building tabernacles. I said that was the the, um, open mouth, insert foot kind of moment from Peter. Tabernacles for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, but is immediately silenced by the voice of majestic glory. Now look, um, look back to 2 Peter and look up a few verses from our text today. Um, let's read 13 and 14 because I want you to notice this. He says uh, in verse 13, I consider it right 
as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Wow, that's just a couple of verses before our passage starts. And he's talking about an earthly dwelling. And some of you might have some, some translations of the scriptures that say there instead, a body or tent or tabernacle. Isn't that funny? And here he is. He's relating the story of the transfiguration in which once again he had that open mouth insert foot comment about building tabernacles. And I don't know if there's actually an intention there from Peter, <laughs> whether he actually intended to talk about his tabernacle and then call attention to the transfiguration in which he had that, that point because he doesn't mention it in, in the second Peter. But it still fits perfectly with the overall context and with what Peter's trying to communicate. He says, um, basically what Peter has done is he's, he's juxtaposed, he's, uh, he's, he's compared the man-made things and their impermanence with the permanent things of God, whether he intended to do it or not. He certainly, we certainly see that within the transfiguration story that we read in Matthew. And what we end up seeing is that in this epistle, we're also kind of getting that same point, that the things of man are impermanent. But the things of God will always stay. And that kind of made me think about Gamaliel. You remember his advice to the Sanhedrin after, when the church first began? It was good advice, actually. It was wise. He said, you know, what, brothers? I think we ought to leave this one alone, right? If we keep on going like this, there's, there are two, one of two ways this can go. If it's from man, it's all going to die off. You know, after all, all these other Christs, these messiahs, have come and gone and nothing's been made of them. But if it's from God, you may find yourself fighting against God. And I think down through the centuries, through the millennia since Christ came, how many people have been fighting against God with their heresies and that sort of thing? Because the man-made things will all fall apart. God makes jokes out of them. <laughs> The Lord who sits in heaven laughs. But the things that he has made, those things are permanent. Man can't build tabernacles that are worthy of Christ. Only God can. And it's interesting that when we talk about our bodies as tabernacles, isn't that wonderful that he actually comes in, he deigns as, a, as the Holy Spirit to come in? and make permanent the impermanent? Wow, that's awesome. He has prepared something greater. He has given the prophetic word made more sure. That's what we get to in verse 19. So turn there real quick, verse 19 of our text. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. What, is, what does Peter mean here by the prophetic word? Well, as we keep going, it's obvious. He means the scriptures, all of the scriptures. And we kind of get that too from just the, the, the story of the transfiguration with Moses and Elijah, Law and the Prophets, right? 
either, either and, and the commentators here, and I kind of already commented on this a little bit, the commentators give us two kind of options for how this is to be applied. They say that either the scriptures confirm the apostolic witness, that's the point Peter's trying to make, or the apostolic witness fulfills and thus authenticates the scriptures. They often end up lining those up against one another, and I don't know why they do that. Because to me, it seems absolutely clear here that there is one authenticating the other, and they keep authenticating one another. <laughs> Just like the fact that Peter saw the transfigured Christ and then understood the scriptures, we will understand the scriptures and then see the transfigured Christ. There's a way in which this keeps on going, and it's authenticated. First of all, it's self-authenticated through the scriptures, which is wonderful. But then it's authenticated by God, who once again makes permanent things. And I think that's really key here. So I think both are true. The scriptures confirm the apostolic witness, and the apostolic witness confirms the scriptures. I think that's most compelling. And this is written by the apostles, complete with the message of Christ to whom the majestic glory bears witness. It authenticates and underlines the importance of the law and the prophets, therefore. After all, Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 17 and 18, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. In other words, there's a use for the law today. Far from abolishing the prophetic words of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, Christ further ennobles them and empowers them. And I, I use those terms very clear, uh, very, very purposefully. He ennobles them by being their fulfillment. God himself made flesh. And he empowers them, not for the condemnation of, of men, though that is one use of the law, but instead empowers them for revealing the greatness and the goodness and the glory of God's redemptive plan throughout history. This prophetic word is then made more sure in that Christ himself is the focus of both the law and the prophets to the point that though some got to see him in the flesh, though some got to see him cast out demons, though some got to see him heal the sick, Though some even got to see him transfigured into white light, the fact that the one who came fulfilled all that the law and prophets said hundreds of years before his coming was attested to by the blood of the apostles and the martyrs, validated by millennia of consistent scrolls and manuscripts which tell the story, and finally proven and confirmed by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Yeah, we have something more sure. More sure than even sight can absorb. The prophetic word is made more sure because by it we see the truth. And that's the point that Peter goes on to say in verse 19. He says, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Notice that Peter's underselling it. He's underselling it here. He's saying, you know, basically, based on this, we got to say, after the power of the statement about the prophetic word made more sure, we got to say, yeah, Pete, you betcha. We had better pay attention. But we're back to the parousia, the coming of Christ again, as we pay attention to it. 
because the call of Peter is to pay attention to the prophetic word all the way until he returns. Why is this? Why does Peter tell us to pay attention? Because the prophetic word is the lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in our hearts. Sin has made this world dark. And this body of death cringes in the light, shrinking from it for fear that it will illumine our sins before God. But we've been washed, right? We've been sanctified. We've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and the spirit of our God, so that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? That's 1 Corinthians 6, 11 and Romans 8, 1 put together. And what does it do? It allows us then to not cringe in the light, but to realize that we see the truth and the glory of Christ by it. It means that we have nothing to fear. Instead, it's a guide to us. The truth of this prophetic word is that it leads us to the ultimate revelation of Christ so that we bring full circle once again the attestation of Christ which Peter saw on the Mount of Transfiguration and then wrote about to us in 2 Peter as a way of expressing the greatness of the law and the prophets so that we, by the law and the prophets, might see the truth of God written in its pages so that we too might one day see the parousia of Christ just as Christ did, or as Peter did. What a glorious chain. What a powerful truth. What a future we have through the goodness of God and the preservation of the scriptures through the Holy Spirit and the converging focus of it upon God the Son in whom is all our hope and joy and peace. And then rather anticlimactically, Peter goes on. He says in verse 20, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. My anticlimactic comment there wasn't meant to say that I think Peter should have stopped at verse 19. <laughs> I mean, obviously, that's not where he was supposed to stop. Otherwise, the Spirit would have stopped him there, right? So we get verses 20 and 21 for a reason. But what I mean is that the parousia, the coming of Christ, the revealing of Christ, the revelation of him in the sky is truly what we all long for, isn't it? That's what we're living for. We can't wait to see that day. And it's hard to think of something else after that. But Peter, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, does go on and he expresses exactly my point about the Holy Spirit guidance. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Obviously, Peter's not talking about the recipient here of the, of the prophecy after it's written down. We're talking about where the prophecy begins. The person who's writing it out, the apostle or the other who wrote down what God inspired him to write, that's who we're talking about. And that's, as it goes on in, in the text, we see that that's very clear. But then also, it's not just about prophecy as in like foretelling something. Instead, it's, it's not just prophecy as a prediction. Instead, it's um, prophecy as in the prophetic word, which you used a sentence ago in regard to Scripture. It's the law and the prophets. It's Christ and the apostles, that which the Holy Spirit moves and confirms. And then he goes on and he says, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Holy Spirit moves men to speak words from God. And the word moved here, Pharaoh, it means to bring or to carry. 
or even to sustain. So in other words, the Holy Spirit carries the writers to a point beyond where their own strength and understanding can take them. That's a prophetic word. Not just foretelling the the future, although there's plenty of that in Scripture, right? But rather also carrying them beyond their own ability to both understand and the strength with which they have to be able to communicate it. The human will that Peter writes here is unable to produce such brilliance and transcendence. And what he wants to do is call that out. Compare what we see in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, and now the writings, of course, uh, from Paul, which he also attests to later on in the epistle. But he says, remember these writings, these scriptures that are obviously from God, and compare them to what the heretics tell you, to those who are twisting it. Those are the cleverly devised tales. And they're not very good. And so I use the terms brilliance and transcendence here very purposefully. First of all, brilliance. It must be used. Not merely because the scriptures are so deeply intelligent and insightful, like we often use the term, right? Uh, or sometimes it's just good. Uh, oh, it, almost we use it in... in, um, in re- replacing cool and awesome and stuff like that, right? Oh man, that candy bar was brilliant. (laughs) It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but we still use it that way. And that's not what I'm talking about brilliance here. Instead, I'm talking about brilliance, not just in terms of being good or intelligent or insightful, but because the light that Peter is referencing here is brilliant. This, these scriptures actually reveal our true state as we read and consider them. Do you realize that? That's brilliance. Shining a light that uncovers every nook and cranny of our sinful nature. Wow. They show us to be what we are in a way that not even another human or not even ourselves can perceive. Our mind isn't capable of it. That's brilliance, and that's what I'm talking about with the scriptures. Or the word transcendence, I use that word. Why? Because these scriptures are so far beyond any of us to use them to our own advantage. And what I mean is there are a whole bunch of people who try to use the scriptures as a tool. Um, And it is a tool in some ways, right? We use it as a sword to fight against against Satan and against the, the world and against our flesh. Yes, it's a tool in that way. It's a tool to gain wisdom and, to know, and knowledge in God. But that requires humility. There are a whole bunch of other people who are using it as a tool to get rich and to get well-known and to build their own kingdoms, their own fiefdoms. And what's interesting is that it transcends even that because all of those things will crumble to dust. And that's what I mean by it being transcending. It transcends all of the intentions of the sinful human heart. It's not a tool for building a fiefdom for yourself. Instead, the scriptures tear our human nature down. Just like I said with the brilliance part, they tear our human nature down into its disgusting and sinful core and then washes it and rebuilds it in the image of Christ. Brilliance and transcendence indeed. And that can only come from a holy God. And so we're back to where I started at the beginning. Peter gives us here a guarantee. The guarantee is that God is powerful enough and majestic enough and honorable enough 
and glorious enough, and yes, perfect enough to keep his scriptures pure and undefiled against all that hell has to throw against it. The application of that guarantee then becomes key. We can have confidence in it. Yes, it is self-authenticating, and some people think that may be like a, a circular a bit of circular reasoning. But no, we have a starting point. The starting point is God Himself. And amazingly, it's not just attested to in Scripture that He exists and that in Him we live and move and have our being. But every time we walk outside, we end up seeing His glory shown in the things that are made. Every time we take a breath and every time our heart beats, we're actually seeing the fact that God exists. And so we can have confidence then in the word of God because he's big enough and powerful enough to keep it. We receive these holy scriptures. That's how the confessions put it. We receive them. So it's not just, it's not something we took and assembled and we took really good care of over the centuries, you know, the church, and then uh, put our stamp of approval on it and said, yes, this is the Bible. We're saying that this is right. This is good. No, it's God. God put it together. And then he gave it to us as a gift and we receive it as that gift. Perfect in all of its ways. Oh, Sure. Sometimes the interpretations of it get, the translations of it get something wrong. Oh, yes, occasionally there was a scribe who put in a comma where he shouldn't have. Put in some jot or tittle somewhere where it didn't belong and confused things. But it's amazing down through the centuries how perfect it is. And so we apply it to everything we do. We apply it to everything we see, everything we experience. We spend time in it knowing that it has authority over us, as well as the church, as well as the state. It has power over us. It doesn't require some man-made institution to confirm its authority because its authority has been established by God from whom we received it. It is infallible in its application to life. It's inerrant in every statement of truth, and it's sufficient for all knowledge and wisdom in this life. And from now until we see King Jesus descending from on high, blazing white in his clothes like he did on the Mount of Transfiguration, crowned in splendor and majesty and glory, coming to take us home, we have these scriptures these prophetic words made more sure. Isn't that awesome? And then we also have the promises in them that we get to see the transfigured Christ one day. That is awesome. Peter got to see it and we will too. Praise God. So let's pray and then we'll break up into our discussion groups. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this passage. We thank you for the guarantee that you give us the guarantee that is, uh, is held by your, your divine attributes, your personhood, your perfection, your holiness. And because you are holy and perfect, we know that your scriptures can be holy and perfect and that you make them holy and perfect through your Holy Spirit who interprets them for us. And we ask, Lord, that you would guide us in the truth every day and that our humility that we would be humble before you, that, uh, that you would use that humility then 
to tear us down and to build us up into the image of Christ. Because that's what we truly want one day, to be like Christ and to see him as he is. And that is your promise to us. And so we are grateful for that as well. We can't wait to see the transfigured Christ because we know, Lord, that that coming will bring perfection. It will bring a time, eternity of love and of just beauty basking in your presence, Lord. And as these bodily tabernacles wear down, please renew us every day with your strength and with your truth. Please bless our time and discussion this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.